Um, I want you to think about, maybe try and cast your mind back to a time when you knew real peace. And what was it that made that such a peaceful, um, calm, good time when all was well with the world? What kind of thing made it peaceful um, for you? Maybe it was something like this. Maybe it was a holiday where the weather was really beautiful and uh, and you were just able to relax and rest and kind of soak up some rays and get a nice suntan, enjoy some good food. Maybe you had family around at the same time on that holiday or maybe it was Christmas time, something like that. And all of your loved ones were there and close. Uh, maybe it was a time that you had really good health. Maybe that's something you're struggling with at the moment. So you can remember back to happier, more peaceful um, times when your health was really good and nothing to worry about. Or maybe it's a, a memory from recent times or long ago of spiritual peace. Maybe it was the time that you became a Christian, um, if you are a Christian, and you knew forgiveness and you knew that the past was gone, the old had gone, the new had come, um, you were forgiven and, um, and you felt at peace. You felt wonderful. What was it that makes that made your situation peaceful? Maybe it was one of those things where you can see, I hope where I'm going with that, because all of those kinds of situations or the opposites are here in this story tonight. There's terrible weather, there's spiritual darkness and oppression, and there's, there's awful chronic physical health. And then there's the death of a loved family member. All things that severely disrupt the peace in the lives of the various different people that we meet in the stories today. So this evening, um, I don't have... Uh, a bundle of points for you really have just one, which is that in the face of Jesus's power, there's peace. In Jesus' presence, there's peace. And you can see that in each one of these stories in different ways, these different forces of this um, cursed world that rip peace away from us. All of them bow down to Jesus's power. He's able to bring peace, even in the face of the deepest sadness, of the darkest storms and um, evil, uh, worst of health, even death itself, Jesus brings peace. So let's work our way through the stories and see Jesus in action. So it, it begins with um, what is my um, third child, so second son's Thomas, Thomas's favourite story. Uh, he often gets us to act this out. He's three years old, so he kind of listens reasonably well when we have fam family Bible time. But this is the story that really gets him in the zone, is the story of Jesus calming the seas. So what you have to do when Thomas is telling you the story is um, act like the waves and the sea. So you wave your hands, you kind of make uh, loud, windy noises, um, not in a rude way, but in a kind of stormy way with your mouth. And then Thomas will say in Welsh, um, be quiet. And so you have to stop the noise and then stop your hands waving and, and behave like a kind of quiet sea. And this is his favourite story. It's a famous one, isn't it? Maybe you've um, read it, known of it, heard this story over and over again since early days in Sunday school. But it's an amazing story. The disciples go out with Jesus in a boat. They've been working. Jesus has been working tirelessly. And so he's exhausted. He goes out in a boat on the lake. Um, and a huge storm kicks up. It's actually a pretty big lake, the Lake of Galilee. A big storm um, kicks up and the, the boat is rocking. You can imagine it filling up with water, but Jesus is sleeping somehow, so exhausted, sleeping in the back of the boat, and the disciples are losing their minds. Uh, it started as a lovely, maybe an evening um, punt out on the uh, on the lake, a lovely sunset. You can imagine it a nice relaxing place to have a nap on your way over the other side of the lake. And it's turned into a nightmare. 
But all of a sudden, as the disciples are losing their minds, thinking that they're going to die, they eventually wake up Jesus and say, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Please help us. Why are you sleeping? Don't you care about us? It's not idyllic anymore, isn't it? No sunset, a raging storm. And what does Jesus do? He stands up. And we all know the story, so maybe the surprise of it has got lost on us. But Jesus speaks to inanimate objects and they listen to him. Jesus speaks to water and to the forces of the weather and they listen to him. They fall down flat. And if you live anywhere near the seaside or if you're, I don't know, a keen boater or a surfer or anything like that, you'll know that after a storm passes through, the water is still full of waves. You can go surfing in the lovely sunshine a few days or you know, a week sometimes after a storm has gone through. But this water obeys Jesus's voice immediately and settles down. I wonder if that reminds us of anyone. And when we hear the disciples say, who is this? I wonder if that reminds us of, well, the first few verses of scripture where inanimate nothingness listens to the voice of God and becomes something. Nothing becomes something at the sound of God's voice. And then all of that matter, which is chaotic and dark and the spirits hovering over it is formed into land and sea and life comes, animals and um, sea creatures and um, birds of the air and all sorts of types of, um, of fruit and vegetables and plants and eventually humans. Inanimate matter listens to God's voice. And so who is this? The disciples are asking the right question, aren't they? Who does Luke think this is? And um, this is the creator. And what has he come to do? He's come to bring peace in a storm, literally for these disciples. Inanimate objects listen to him and he brings his power over even nature, even the ground under our feet or the water under their feet in this case, listens to him. Then there's the next story. The next story, they reach the other side of the lake. If, I, if it was me, I would probably have just turned back at the storm and kind of try to go and find a place to nap somewhere else. But Jesus carries on. And his determination is never lacking, is it, in the stories we have in the gospel. Jesus is always on his mission, setting his face to, uh, to serve and to give his life for others. So they reach the other side of the lake and they're no longer in familiar territory. This is a Gentile region, a place where... Um, I presume none of them knew particularly well. They weren't known. These people don't seem to know who Jesus is. It's not a friendly place. It's a place full of Gentiles who keep pigs of all things. Um, and Jesus steps, steps ashore and receives quite the welcome party. A, a man who's oppressed by demons, many demons, runs towards him and starts screaming at the top of his lungs. What do you want with me? Jesus, son of the most high God. We're down in verse 28 now. I beg you, don't torture me. What a welcome party that is. Um, but Jesus doesn't cross the street. He doesn't say, kind of, I don't know, get the disciples to put up a rope cord and then push him away so he can get into the village to the nice people. Jesus sits down and it almost seems as if this is the, the reason that he came across the lake to find this man who was a, a troublesome character who had caused all sorts of people, all, all kinds of grief to the point where they were locking him up, trying to chain him up leaving him in, to live outside the town, the city and the graveyards. And um, this is a man who caused people a lot of trouble. Who imagine we might cross the street when we saw him, but Jesus goes straight to him. And there's a little opportunity for us to pause and just ask if we're following Jesus, if we're walking the way of the master, then how do we respond to troublesome people? 
Um, when you see somebody who you know is kind of very high maintenance and needs a lot of time and help, you see them coming towards you after church on a Sunday or walking down the street or they phone you up, um, do you give them time or do you cross the street and walk the other way? How do we respond to troubling people? Well, Jesus crosses the lake through a storm to get to this man. And what does he do when he gets there? Well, he speaks a word and the storm of this man's life, the complete chaos of his life is calmed and there's peace. First, Jesus spoke to inanimate things and peace came and the disciples were delivered in safety. Now he speaks to deep spiritual darkness, legions of demons that nobody has ever been able to control, that have taken charge of this man's life, that have consumed his personality, have almost made him an unperson. He's living a living death, isn't he? He's literally living out in the tombs. And Jesus comes and meets him face to face and with a word commands the demons to leave. And they rush out into the pigs. The pigs drag them down into water. Water's always in scripture, or at least most of the time, especially in the Old Testament and in Revelation, you'll find it's a picture of judgment, of God judging, pulling these demons down to what they deserve. Um, the man, presumably, eventually, would have been pulled down to his death by these demonic forces. And yet Jesus sends them away, rescues him. And so the pigs die instead of the man and he's set free. He rushes back into town, not, not him, um, the owners of the pigs rush back into town and spread the word and everybody comes out to see and I wonder what they're expecting. Usually when they come out to this part of town, presumably they find this crazy man and they, um, they rush on by as quickly as possible. But this time they find him sitting down at Jesus' feet in his right mind, demons nowhere to be seen, and he's dressed, he's clothed, his dignity, his honour is back, peace has reigned in his life. And how do they respond? You might imagine how they would respond. Would they rush to Jesus and flock around him and say, oh, please help me, help me. But they don't. They ask him to leave. They're terrified of Jesus. I wonder if you can relate to that. If you have ever had an experience, I don't know when, um, but where you've known the reality of Jesus. You just know it's true. You know he's there. You know he's king of everything. And that scares you seems to have been what happened to these people. I, I don't know if it was the fact that he had fixed their greatest problem and so now was maybe holding up a mirror to their other problems and saying, well, look, what, what could you hold back from me? What is it that you're not dealing with? What are the little petty problems that you've projected onto this man? You know, he was the one who carried all your troubles, who you blamed for everything. And now he's sorted out and in his right mind. It's like you might have to deal with your problems after all. Maybe they're scared of change or something like that. Or maybe they are, like I said, just scared of Jesus himself. The fact that they've come face to face with this man who is more powerful than legions of demons. And that peace, that kind of power terrifies them. And they ask him to leave and Jesus does. He gets into a boat, but as he does, there's another response, isn't there? This man, he doesn't want Jesus to go. He wants to go with Jesus. He wants to follow him out around everywhere and always be there, sitting at his feet, in his right mind, at peace, in Jesus's presence. But Jesus says, this is quite surprising, isn't it? Jesus says, not yet. Don't follow me around just yet. I've got a job for you to do. Go back and tell them, return home, this is verse 39, and tell how much God has done for you. Those people who rejected me, who don't want anything to do with me, who are terrified of me, go back and tell them who I really am. They just don't understand yet. Go back to them what happened to you 
and maybe they'll have another opportunity to come and know me in the future. Go back and tell them what God has done for you. And then just notice this. So the man, this is the second half of verse 39, went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. So who does Luke think Jesus is? Just put those two things together. Jesus says, go and tell them what God has done for you. And the man goes and talks about what Jesus has done for him. Luke is making it pretty clear, I think. First, we get a picture of somebody speaking and the creation listens. And now we get the picture of somebody who, well, who's doing God's work, who is God's way of working in the world. This is God himself walking among us. And so Jesus has brought peace again. His power has brought peace in this man's chaotic life. And then we get to our third story. We're back across the other side of the lake. It just isn't stopping for Jesus. Maybe he had a nap on, on the way back. No storm this time. And when they reach the other side, a crowd gathers around again, waiting for him, expecting him. And an important man, a man called Jairus. I mean, we've seen the lowest of the low in this demon-possessed man, kicked out of the city, living in the graveyard. Now this man is really respected in comparison, a synagogue leader, a religious man. So we're not to think, as we often make the religious leaders of this time, um, the kind of pantomime baddies, you know, the Pharisees. And we're, we're not to think that they were all against Jesus. Now, this man is a synagogue leader. He knows his Bible and he knows Jesus. He knows Jesus is his only hope because his daughter is ill. She's 12 years old. She's a young lass and she's dying. You can imagine how desperate he is, but actually he's not our third story. Our third story is an interruption. The crowds are squashing in around him and all of a sudden Jesus stops. You can imagine them um, like a storm, aren't they? Squashing around, battering. They, they can barely walk in the right direction and the noise, uh, noise levels are really high. And all of a sudden Jesus says, stop. And the crowd goes quiet. Everybody waits. And he asks us a bit of a kind of comedy question. Who touched me? And they say, well, look, everybody's touching you. Um, what do you mean who touched you? Because the crowd was pressing around him. And Jesus said, no, look, somebody deliberately touched me. And I know that power has gone out from me. And put yourself in the shoes of the woman, the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. And put yourself in her shoes for a moment, because... If you know your Old Testament law, you'll know that she was somebody who was not supposed to be close to people. She was supposed to be a shadow's length away from anybody so that so that she wouldn't get close to tainting anybody else with her illness. Because her um, bleeding, being sick for that long would make her. Um, I know this might sound strange to our, our ears, but in the Old Testament law, it would make her unclean. It would mean she couldn't go close to people, couldn't go close to the temple, couldn't go close to her family. Imagine what her life has been like, possibly away from her husband, away from children or grandchildren, or never even had the possibility of having a family, supposed to be living far away from anybody else in the community. Her life would have been really hard. And then here she is, maybe with a hood over her, something like that. So people don't recognize she's pushed away through the crowd, touched people, made them unclean. And imagine what it's like now for Jesus to say, stop and call her out. Imagine what she's thinking. Maybe Jesus is, in her mind, maybe he's going to expose her and everybody's going to know what she's done and everybody's going to cringe away from her. I mean, she's been social distancing from people for 12 years. I found it difficult for, you know, 12 months and a couple more. I still find it awkward when people, you know, are walking down the pavement and somebody will cross the road 
I find it a little bit of a oh, what's you know what's wrong with me and then remember that we're in a pandemic and that kind of thing is expected and normal and in fact good behavior but this woman poor thing nobody else was doing it but she had to be socially distanced from everyone for over a decade just imagine what that would have been like for her and Jesus says who was it come here the woman seeing she couldn't go unnoticed came and trembling of course she was and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people she told why she had touched him and how she'd been instantly healed and he said to her didn't say to her get out what have you done making us all unclean no Jesus when she touched him his cleanness had leaked out all over her had made her clean his health and livingness had cured her kind of um, her lack of health the death in her body and he says to her daughter your faith has healed you go in peace you see in the face of Jesus's power even chronic illness gives way to peace and then um, a really awful part of the story happens if you thought the storm was bad if you thought the severely demon oppressed man was in trouble if you thought that this chronically ill woman had it difficult well the news comes through that the girl that they were going to died don't bother the teacher anymore they say it's over it's too late and you can imagine maybe for some of you don't need to imagine what that feels like when you receive the news of a bereavement. I hope you've never been anything through anything quite like this, losing a child, but perhaps some of us have. You can imagine um, what Jairus feels like, that his heart falls out through his stomach, that his face goes white, uh, that his legs go to jelly, that he can barely believe it, uh, that it's over, his daughter's dead, hope is gone. And then Jesus says something utterly crazy. He says, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. And imagine saying that to somebody whose daughter has just died. Imagine the kind of confidence he has to have in his own words. But soon he backs up that confidence. He turns up at the house. Everybody's wailing and mourning. And there's a huge commotion. But he says, stop. It's another storm, isn't it? A storm of grief. And Jesus says, stop wailing. She's not dead, but asleep. And they laugh at him. They can't, I, what kind of laugh that would be? Just incredulity. How could you say such a thing? But Jesus, knowing, um, so they knew that she really was dead. She wasn't just asleep, but Jesus calls death sleep here. Took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. See, even death in the face of Jesus's power, even dead people hear his voice. Even death is nothing in comparison to a couple of words Jesus says, little child, my child, get up. And her spirit returned. And at once she stood up. Some of you will know just the feeling of the impossibility of that kind of thing happening when a loved one has died and their spirits departed from their body. And, and just that it's just so strange and incongruous, isn't it? It's not meant to be like that. And we can't reverse it. But Jesus can with a word. Her spirit returned. And at once she stood up. And Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished. I'm not sure that quite covered it. But he ordered them not to tell anyone about what happened. They had to keep it to themselves for a moment anyway. Um, these are stunning things that Jesus does, aren't they? Maybe we've known these stories, but, um, but we should let them dwell on us again. That In the face of Jesus's power, all of these forces that ruin our peace, that ruin our world, don't stand a chance. Jesus is powerful over all of them. How can he do that, though? 
how can he be Lord over creation and Lord even over spiritual darkness and evil? How can he be Lord over health and sickness and Lord even over death so that these things don't stand a chance against him? How can he be, bring us peace in these most horrible of circumstances? Well, because, because of what Jesus would go through a few chapters on from this. I wonder if you've seen the hints so far. See, there would be another time when Jesus would be asleep in a storm of God's judgment. And he would be not just as in snoozing, he would be in the sleep of death. And the disciples would be losing their minds, not knowing what to do, wondering where he had gone and how it had all come to this. Jesus would be dead in the grave and the disciples would lock themselves in a room. A few chapters on in that same story, think of it in another way. Jesus would have been, Jesus has been on the cross bitten by the teeth of Satan and dragged down to his death in the sea of God's judgment, dragged down by the, the accuser. Satan's teeth are into him and he's been killed on the cross. No hope. He's been taken outside of the camp and not just kind of living or sleeping in the graveyards, but he's been laid in an empty tomb. And then they rolled a stone in front of him because he really was dead. Jesus's body was bleeding, not for 12 years, but for hours. And he didn't stay alive after that bleeding. Jesus bled to his death, was unclean, hung on a cross outside of the camp, far away from everybody else. People mocking and spitting at him. It was only his mother, a couple of other women and one friend who watched there. Everybody else rejected him and, and looked at him and said, he's cursed by God. Far outside, keep him outside the camp. And then Jesus suffered what this little girl suffered. He really died. He really died. And they laid him in a tomb and wept over him. And yet, three days later, you know the story, three days later, he stood among them. The tomb was empty. The storm was calm. It really was finished. He came back from the dead. The devil's teeth had been ripped out. His wounds were healed. There were scars to remind us of his suffering and to show us his glory. But the bleeding had stopped and he was alive. And what did he do? He ate as well. You see that link? Jesus says, give us some food. And then a few, I don't know how long it was, but a few chapters in the story later, Jesus is standing among his disciples, among these same people saying, give me some food to eat. I'll show you. I'm not a ghost. It's not just a figment of your imagination. It's not some kind of psychological event you're having because of the stress. I'm really alive. And he really was back from the dead, never to die again. You see, because of Jesus's death in the storm of God's judgment, because of his defeat of Satan, as he bore our sin, as he was accused and became sin for us, because of Jesus's bleeding, his blood poured out because of his death and because of his glorious resurrection, he now stands as king, as saviour as lord over all of these powers so even death can't hold him even sickness is no match for him even demons run a mile from him even creation longs for the day when he'll come back in full glory and it'll be freed it'll be freed from the curse of storms and all of the disaster that we see even under our feet see jesus is the lord over absolutely everything and the cross and resurrection proves that it means that there's absolutely nothing, nothing that we're going through that is a match for the Lord Jesus's power. It's a mystery, isn't it, to us why he doesn't heal us 
why he doesn't deliver us, why our loved ones die while we still struggle with um, incessant rain that just seems to never stop and you know, difficult things like that that rob us of peace. And um, sometimes, well, often it's hard to know why does Jesus still let us go through these things when he has the power to stop them? And yet he does have the power. And one day we'll use it finally and fully to bring a world where all things, everything that is sad will come untrue. All things will be under his feet. So we should bring all of our sadnesses, all the um, things that rob us of peace. We should bring them before him and ask him um, to heal us, ask him to help us, ask him to bring us peace in the midst of our trials. And, um, and we should expect his word to do that. That's what we see here, isn't it? Jesus's words bring peace to people. So let's store up his words in our hearts. And let's also ask if we're people who are following the Lord Jesus in this way. We'll, well, we need to bow to his lordship. But if you've done that, well, how are you living a cross-shaped life? I mean, that's what Jesus was doing here, wasn't he? Every single moment of his life, every single one of these stories is cross-shaped. So how are we doing that? How are we standing with people in their storms as they go through the storms of life and bringing the words of the Lord Jesus to bear in their dark times? How are we going out to the most difficult and strange and most troubled of people and bringing the words of the Lord Jesus and the power of his healing into their lives? How are we going to those who are sick and chronically struggling in deep pain, mentally and physically, and bringing the words of the Lord Jesus to bear to help them? And how are we comforting those who are dying, those who've been bereaved, with the words of Jesus's death and resurrection on their behalf? Do you see, if we're following the Lord Jesus, then we need to bow to him as our Lord, the Lord over everything. And then we need to walk in his ways and live cross-shaped lives. And one last way we can do that is notice, notice how many different people there are here. Notice that there are rich people and poor people. There are people who are very close, who've been following Jesus for an awfully long time. And Jesus, and there have been people who ask him to leave. There are people who are very high and very low. There are people who are Gentiles and people who are Jews. There are people who are old and people who are young. People who are sick and people who are healthy. There's all different kinds of humanity represented here. And Jesus goes to all of them. Even the people who ask him to leave, Jesus sends even to them a witness so that they might have an opportunity to come back and know him. So let's do the same as we're walking after Jesus, following the Lord, as we're bringing to him all of our struggles and suffering, as we're walking cross-shaped lives, bringing the word of the cross and the resurrection into the lives of others. Well, let's make sure that we're doing that for all kinds of people. So you could ask yourself a question. Um, who have you forgotten about? Who have you given up on? Jesus gives up on nobody even the people who ask him to leave and seem to have no interest. And Jesus doesn't give up on anybody. He comes in power to bring peace to everyone. It reminds me as we finish these words from Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We walk through all sorts of troubles, don't we, as Christians? And yet, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, 
think that pretty much covers everything we've heard about in the story so far. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord.